Thank you, Pastor Gary. It's good to be in the house of God this morning. For those of you who don't know me, my name is John. I've been coming here to Infuse Church for a bit over three years now, ever since I moved over from Melbourne. Not that I didn't like Melbourne. That's lots of good things about Melbourne, actually. Um, For example, just a little backwater suburb like Montmorency, for example, there's a little suburban shopping strip and it's got a mini supermarket and a bakery and a pizza shop and a bottle shop and three cafes. And what's even, even better about that is that all three cafes sell really good coffee. That's Melbourne for you. Anyway, I... As I said, it's not that I didn't like Melbourne. I, I, I wanted to marry this lady who was living in Handorf and you know, I thought that would be a whole lot easier if we were living in the same state. So uh, over I came a bit over three years ago and uh, um, haven't regretted a moment, really. It's been good. I am a bit familiar with South Australia. I spent my teenage years and some of my early 20s years in South Australia. So it was kind of like coming back home in one way. Um, you'll see me sort of putting these on and off. I, my eyesight's really good at distances greater than that. Um, so if I kind of have to peer at my notes here, I'm going to do this. And so you know that when I pick up these things, I'm going, uh, what does that say? It's funny, having, um, having studied anthropology, I, uh, one of my favourite sports is, uh, is people watching. I love watching people. I really do. Uh, not just individuals, but I love watching the way people interact with each other. And, uh, you know, who does what and how do they do it? And uh, sometimes just sitting there watching people talking with each other or, or interacting with each other, I, I just really enjoy it. I can sit there and watch and go, <laughs> I love that. And sometimes, you know, the meet and greet here in, in church in the morning and I sort of have to remind myself to actually go and talk to somebody and not just stand there and watch people interact. It's, um, because I really like doing that and uh, I, would, I would happily do that a lot more if I, you know, had the time to do that. But often I wonder, and uh, in a group of people, I, and again it's the old anthropologist thing coming through, what... I wonder what role they play. What, what part do they play in this, this group? How do they fit into what happens here? And that was actually a really important question to ask. When I, I, for those of you who don't know, I lived and worked in Africa for 10 plus years. And uh, when you, 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 in a culture which you're unfamiliar with, and you, you've got to learn how things go on. And it's a really important thing to ask. How does this person fit into the group? And, and what do they do here? And, and how do people relate to them? And how am I supposed to relate to them? They're really important questions to ask. So over the years, I've got into the habit of asking those kind of questions. And... As you know, you look around a group, and, and I've done it here, I, not usually when you're preaching, Gary, but uh, I've looked around and I've, I've gone, okay, I, I, gee, I, I, I've seen that person around, but I don't know their name and I don't know them very well, and I wonder how they fit in here. I wonder what part they play here. And uh, I, mean, I guess some people, they, they, it's a pretty obvious part they play. They get up the front and they introduce themselves and they start preaching or they... Are they lead us in communion or they lead worship or you see them at the front door or you might have seen me cooking chips in the kitchen and, uh, you know, that's, that's a part I play around here and those kind of parts, you see them, you know, you, you see people doing them and you go, oh, yeah, okay, that's, that's, that's what they do around here. 
sometimes you don't see what people do around here. It's not to, not to mean that they don't do anything. <laughs> lots of people around here that do lots of things fit into this group of people that we are and, and people don't know what they're doing. Well, some people don't know what they're doing anyway because they don't see them. And uh, there's this passage in, in 1 Corinthians 12 which I've had a bit of a love-hate relationship with over the years. Um, I say that because it's a, it's a fantastic passage for explaining how groups of people fit together. Um, it's in 1 Corinthians chapter 12 from verse 12 onwards and Paul talks about, he likens the church to, to a body and he talk, talks about the body of Christ and the different parts and, and so on. And I'm not going to read that passage this morning but I'll just um, put it up there for you to um, be aware of. And it's a great passage in that way but I've had this sort of, the hate side of it's been, well I guess it sort of started in one Sunday school class I was in once and the, the particular leader of the group I was in kind of insisted that you know each child in the group pick a human body part that they thought represented them in some way and, and being a bit of an introverted 10-year-old boy I was not into that exercise at all, thank you very much. And I seem to I, I remember sort of refusing to um, refusing to take part. Actually, I was I just spat the dummy a bit that day, and um, it kind of had a bit of a <laughs> bad influence on my my reading of that passage for a few years. I really I really got to dislike it, but it's a great passage because it explains just how people fit together. And and Paul, in fact, here in in 1 Corinthians, the the Corinthian letters are just fantastic because Paul was writing to a church that had issues, like big, big issues. And not only did the church have big issues, but it's just so obvious what he's... In 1 Corinthians particularly, he goes through and he says, right, now about worship, brothers. Right, now about spiritual gifts. Right, now about... And, And he tells you what he's going to be talking about for the next chapter. And that is a, that's a Bible interpreter's dream, okay? The author is telling you in black and white there at the beginning of the paragraph, this is what I'm going to be talking about for the next chapter. Heads up, you know? It just makes it so much easier to figure out what the guy's talking about when he tells you. He just writes headings. In, you know, there's headings you see in the Bible. There, there's some editor's opinion. Sometimes they're helpful. But in 1 Corinthians, Paul actually puts in the text of Scripture, he's got headings. Yeah? Now about this, now about, now about marriage, now about... Um, all these things. And this, this passage in 1 Corinthians 12 is in the section about now about spiritual gifts. Yeah? And uh, it seems to us, and uh, those of us who have you know, looked at the text really carefully, that in the church in Corinth there are a whole lot of people who, and probably because of their background and what they were before they became Christians, they were of the opinion that the more spectacular stuff you could do, the more spiritual you were. So it was kind of like, Hey, um, <clears throat> I'm sorry, Gina, you know, I can speak in tongues for 60 seconds without repeating the same phrase. I'm a whole lot more spiritual than you because you can only do it for 30. Right? This was the kind of attitude, apparently, okay, that existed in this church. Right? And so Paul has a few pretty sharp things to say to them on other issues too. They had other issues. And uh, here in, in chapter 12, he's talking about how we all, we're all different, okay? We all do different stuff. We can all do this better and someone else can do that better, but we all fit together into one body. There's one spirit. There's one baptism. He goes through this whole, whole list of things about how we're all one in Christ, one body and all that. Um, but we don't have the same gifts and we don't do the same stuff and we don't actually fulfill all the same parts. Now, 
I guess part of my uh, love-hate relationship with this passage over the years has been working out, as I said, as a a 10-year-old boy, I was told to pick a a human body part and say what that really said about me and kind of figure out what part I play in this this body. And uh, I've been in a few different local bodies over the years and... um, and trying to work out what part you play can be a bit, a bit threatening and a bit tricky sometimes. It certainly is for me. And, um, but there's one critical body part that I've discovered over the years that I am. It's part of me. And I'm, I'm not talking about <clears throat> the metaphor here. I'm not talking about human body parts. I'm not going to tell you I'm a, I'm a toe or, or an arm or something like that. I'm... I was over that when I was 10, okay? I'm not going there, all right? But there is a role that I play. And uh, what I consider to be my ministry. And it wasn't always this way. I didn't think it was. You know, I, I started out and I just sort of was following what I, I believe God was, was telling me to do and I didn't think I was doing what I was doing. But I learned later that that's what I was doing. Does that make sense? Yeah, it'll make more sense later, Okay. Anyway, <laughs> so I want to I share with you a bit about that body, body part. And, uh, and I guess those of you who know me fairly well will, will know where it's going because you know me. And if you don't know me so well, well, I'll let you guess, okay? What I want to do for the next little while is have a look at a guy who appears through the book of Acts a number of times and use him as an example of this kind of body part. And the, the thing I like about looking at this guy is that it doesn't... The body part doesn't turn out how most people think at the first. Yeah? There are some obvious parts about the way this guy acts and what he does that <clears throat> you get a bit of a surprise later on when you find out what he really does and all the stuff he does. Yeah? Yeah, I, you, you don't get it at all, do you? That's, that's okay, I'm, I'm, I'm getting there. In Acts chapter 4, from verse, verse 36, there was a man by the name of Joseph, who was a Levite from Cyprus, whom the apostles called Barnabas, which means son of encouragement. He sold a field that he owned and brought the money and put it at the apostles' feet. little innocuous statement coming on the end of... Uh, a passage about how the believers had everything in common and some of them sold property and all that kind of stuff. And this bloke, Joseph, who was from the tribe of Levi, one of the the 12 tribes of Israel, he'd become a Christian and uh, he sold a field. Now, why mention that? I mean, they just said the believers did this. Why, Why mention this bloke, Joseph, whom the apostles called Barnabas? Well, Luke mentions him because he's going to get a lot more mentions through the book of Acts. And what I find fascinating about this guy is the name Barnabas that we know him by in the book of Acts from there on. The name Joseph is not mentioned after this in the book of Acts in reference to this guy. He's just called Barnabas. And uh, as it says there, son of encouragement in in Aramaic, bar, son, and nabas, bar, nabas, means son of encouragement. And uh, if you get a name like that, the apostles gave him this name. Joseph was the name his parents gave him. Okay, and, and a great name that is. I called my son Joseph. It's, a, it's an excellent name. And uh, he, uh, he, had this, he was given this name by the apostles. Now, if you get given a name 
like a nickname, or somebody calls you something that's not your real name, usually it's because there's, there's a reason for it. It's, it's usually because they see in you something to do with that name, right? Um, or they, if they're nasty people, they're doing it to harass you, but that's another thing, okay? That's not what's going on here. The apostles didn't want to harass Joseph with this name. They gave him this name because that's how he was. They called him son of encouragement because he was a really encouraging guy. And he would just get beside people and, and push them on and, and get, them to the next, get them to the next step, get them to the next level, get them, move them on. Yeah? And uh, that's an interesting introduction, very interesting introduction, because as, as act, the book of Acts goes on, Barnabas sort of pops up every now and again. Get to chapter 9, for example, verse 26. And it's talking about this guy Saul who had been going around arresting Christians. Now Saul was a very passionate um, believer in God and he was absolutely convinced these, these Christians were heretics and, he, and this guy Saul never did anything by halves. He was 100% for what he believed. And so he thought these Christians were heretics so he went around arresting them and, and chucking them in jail and, and doing all that kind of thing and... Anyhow, he, this guy Saul met Jesus one day and everything changed. His life just turned on its head. And uh, from verse 26 in chapter 9 it says, When he came to Jerusalem, he tried to join the disciples. <laughs> but they were afraid of him. Not believing that he was really a disciple. Makes sense, right? This guy's been doing what he's been doing. They knew He was well known by the Christians in Jerusalem. Look out for this guy. You know, you, you run across this guy, you're in trouble. So here he is in Jerusalem trying to join the disciples. Verse 27, But Barnabas took him and brought him to the apostles, and he told them how Saul on his journey had seen the Lord and that the Lord had spoken to him and how in Damascus he had preached fearlessly in the name of Jesus. And right there, you see the son of encouragement at work, don't you? Um, in a slightly different way. And each time we see Barnabas pop up, we see the son of encouragement thing a bit differently. Here is someone who's had this incredible conversion, had his life turned on his head. Says in Galatians, he, after he left Damascus, he went to Arabia for three years. That's no wonder. He had passionately believed what he believed. And on the road to Damascus... Jesus pops up in front of him in this incredible vision and says, and Saul suddenly realises that he's been persecuting the Messiah he's been looking out for. See, Saul was a Pharisee, and the Pharisees passionately believed that the Messiah was coming. For all their faults, these Pharisees, and Jesus really had a go at them sometimes, but of all the groups in Judaism in the time of Jesus, the Pharisees actually were probably closest to the theology of Jesus. Stew on that. I, I won't, won't just stew on that, but yeah, that's interesting because they got sharp criticism from Jesus for, for hypocrisy and for making up rules that they didn't really have to make up and all that stuff. But in, generally in their theology, they were closest to Jesus than any of the other sects in Judaism at the time. And Saul was passionate about his belief in God and he was for God and he was going to live his life for God and he was going to just flat foot to the floor. You know, that's the way he lived life. And all of a sudden, one day he, he realised... 
I've got it wrong. I've been flat to the floor in the wrong direction. Imagine the effect that has on you. I don't know if any of you have been in that position. You've been so passionate about something. You've been going, 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 going. And one day you have this horrible realisation that you've been going flat out in the wrong direction. Yeah? Well, that was, Paul, that was Saul's experience. He became called Paul later. And anyway, now he's, he's done his three years in Arabia. It was probably to get his head together yeah? and figure out, well, where did I go wrong? Okay, now I know who the Messiah is and that he was crucified and he rose and I've got to, I've got to go through the scriptures again. And as a Pharisee, Saul would have been able to quote to you chapter after chapter after chapter. He knew it, all right? He probably could have quoted Torah to you from beginning to end. He really knew his scripture. But he now had to go through it and go, wow, I've got a different perspective now. Yeah, that's, I reckon that's what he was doing for three years in Arabia. Anyway, he comes back to Jerusalem and he's a believer. Still perhaps a bit of a young believer, but he's figured out a few things and he wants to join the church. <laughs> he walks in the door. It didn't get a very, very warm reception. For good reason. Yeah? They didn't know. But in Barnabas, but he knew, you see. He'd been there in Damascus when this had happened or he'd heard what had happened. And he, he said, no, he took him aside and he took him to the apostles and said, no, this guy's for real. Yeah? He was a testimony. Hmm? He, when, when Saul needed someone to bear witness for him, Barnabas bore witness. What he needed was collaborating testimony. He walks in and says, hey, I'm a disciple. You're going, yeah, pull the other one, mate. Barnabas says, no, no, that's, that's fair income. That's real. He's a believer. He wouldn't, wouldn't have used the Australian slang, but you know, you know what I mean. And so Barnabas does this bearing witness thing, this testimony thing on behalf of Saul, and he's accepted into the church. I imagine there would have been still a few people giving him some sidelong looks. There would have been still some people working really hard on the forgiveness thing because probably they had relatives or, or family members that Saul had dragged off to jail. But they believed him. He's a believer now. Wow, God can do anything if Saul can turn around, yeah? So we go on a little bit further. Now, Barnabas is not one of the apostles. He's not one of the deacons that gets mentioned in chapter 7. He's nobody particular in the church, as far as we know, until we get to chapter 11 in Acts. And from verse 22 onwards, it, uh, it talks about the church in Antioch. What had happened is a whole bunch of people had fled Jerusalem when a lot of persecution broke out there, and some of them went to Antioch, just up in Syria, a bit further north. And they, they did what Christians do. They talked about their faith. And just a church started. And this was a new thing. You know, there'd been a church in Jerusalem and Philip had been down in Samaria. And, but now for the first time outside of Israel, we've got this church happening and they're not Jews and they've not been circumcised and they've, they don't know the law and all this stuff, but they follow Jesus. And the apostles are going, okay, well, that's great, fantastic. Um, but we need someone to just supervise these guys. yeah, Because they don't know anything up there, really. They don't. I mean, if they, if they are all in around Israel and in Jerusalem, the people who become Christians were mostly Jews, you see. And any Jew is being brought up as a child, he knows the scriptures. Okay, They're taught to memorise 
big chunks of scripture when they're young. And so Christians to this point knew what was in the Bible. And they knew how God, more or less, wanted them to act. Yeah, what kind of lives he wanted them to live. But these are Greeks and Arabs and all sorts of people who hadn't learnt the scriptures as children and didn't know how God wanted them to live. And so the apostles are saying, hang on, we need to send someone up there to, to pastor this church who can tell them, tell them how they're supposed to live and what, how a church is supposed to run. And so they sent Barnabas. Interesting, isn't it? This nobody, as far as we know, but they sent him. But that tells me a lot, again, about this bloke Barnabas and who he was. The apostles needed someone to show a group of people who didn't have any background in the scriptures or in church or any of that stuff how to live as, as Christians. So who do they send? They send Barnabas. You need to think about that for a while. Yeah? What kind of person is he? he cho- the apostles choose Barnabas in that situation. You've got a, got a bunch of people who don't really know how to live how God wants them to. You don't send someone like Peter or... You send Barnabas. You send the son of encouragement. You send the guy who can get beside people and say, now look, this is what God wants and, and this is how we do it and look, I'll show you. All right? Or I think you know, you're getting there, you've got ways to go, but look, you know, fantastic start. And he can, he can get beside people and he can encourage. But even more than that, as you read on verse 26, 27 there in chapter 11 we find one of, the, one of the things that Barnabas did after he'd been at Antioch for a little while, he says, wow, you know what I need? I need someone who's a really good teacher who can get up and preach and expound what the scriptures say. Who am I going to get? I'm going to go get Saul. And so Barnabas travels all the way off to Tarsus to get Saul. You see, Saul after he'd had his world turned upside down, spent three years in Arabia getting his theology back together again, goes to Jerusalem, has this probably rather frightening experience, not quite, nearly not being accepted in the Jerusalem church. The first thing he does is head back home to Tarsus and goes back to you know, treading on canvas in dye vats you know, in his father's tent-making business or something, whatever, sewing canvas together. That's what he was doing. This is the Pharisee who spent 20 years in apprenticeship to Gamaliel, who knows the, the Old Testament backwards, who's a fantastic teacher of the law. He's, he's sewing bits of canvas together. And Barnabas says, you know what? That guy Saul, who's sewing bits of canvas together in Tarsus, is not quite in his right calling. I think I'm going to change that. And off he went and grabbed Saul and brought him to Antioch. And it says there in, in the scriptures that... Uh, there was a group of leaders in Antioch, including Barnabas and Saul, who were, were teachers, prophets, and, and so on in the, in the church. And so here we see another aspect of the son of encouragement thing. You've got, you've got a leader of a church. That's what Barnabas is here. He's the, he's the senior pastor of the Antioch church. And he says, I need someone to do a particular role. I know who that is. I'm going to go get him, and I'm going to... I'm going to put him in that role and I'm going to encourage him. I'm going to tra- you know, train him where it's necessary. Although Saul, as I said, he knew the scriptures backwards already. And I'm going to put him in that role and I'm going to walk beside him and, and he's going to, actually he's going to finish up doing that role a lot better than I could. That's why I have to go get him and do it. Yeah? 
And so Barnabas, the son of encouragement, has gone and dragged Paul away from his father's tent-making business and brought him to Antioch to start teaching the scriptures. Son of encouragement's got so many dimensions, doesn't it? You see, here Barnabas is not just a nobody who's saying, well done, mate, or you can do it, fella. You know, get on with it. Yeah, yeah God's with you. Go, on, go for it. Here... The son of encouragement is the, the senior pastor of a, of a rapidly growing church. It was a big, rapidly growing church in Antioch. He's the senior pastor of that church. He needs someone for a leadership role. And he says, I know who I'm going to find. I'm going to go get that person. I'm going to put him in the right place. I'm going to give him the right tools. I'm going to give him the right encouragement. And he is going to do a better job at it than I am. The son of encouragement. And it goes on. You turn the page and you get to Acts chapter 13. And I see something amazing in chapter 13. Uh, you, you read there and you get... The chapter starts with the description of the, ch- the church in Antioch and how there were these leaders and then the, among them were Saul and Barnabas and a number of others. And God says to Saul and Barnabas, okay, off you go on this missionary journey. And so the church hears that and says, sets them aside, sends them off, off they go. But as you read this description of this missionary journey, and I just... I just love this about the text of Scripture sometimes because you can be reading... This is, we'd call it historical narrative. It's a story. It's a description of what happened. But sometimes in this story, in this description of what happened, you see something and you just go, wow. Get this. Let me just see if I can find some examples. As as we skim through chapter 13, um, the two of them, verse 4, the two of them went off. Verse 6, they travelled here. Um, they met this sorcerer guy. And what you notice as you're going through those first few verses of the chapter, you're seeing Barnabas and Saul did this. Barnabas and Saul did that. Get to verse 13. From Paphos, Paul and his companions. Well, did you get that? Barnabas and Saul has become Paul and his companions. And the first time I noticed that, I went, well, what happened here? Who's the boss now? Hmm. You see what the son of encouragement's doing? He's taken a guy. He sees the ministry this guy can, can have. He's, he's walked beside him, he's encouraged him, he's pushed him along and at the right moment he gets out of his way and stands behind him. That sort of sends shivers up and down my spine. Yeah? That's a, maybe that doesn't, get, that doesn't ring your bells but it rings mine. Okay, that is incredible because I don't see that very much. And it is Fantastic. It is one of the most awesome examples of leadership transition that you will see ever, anywhere. And having worked in Africa, I was just so excited in the years I spent in Kenya to be working in a ministry that operated a bit like that. It was, uh, we went to Kenya with, uh, to, to start some Bible colleges. And, and the way we did that, instead of starting our Bible college, we went and found a church or a ministry that, wanted to start a Bible college, and we said, hey, we'll, we'll help. Yeah, that's what we did. And, uh, 
as I spent several years there in Kenya, I discovered that the leader of this ministry, and, and, and often what happens in, in, in Africa, you, you may or may not know, there's you know, a denomination on every street corner. Okay? Some guy doesn't like his senior pastor who goes down the road and starts his own church. Okay? That, that happens a lot. Right? So you've got denominations everywhere. You've got all sorts of... Oh, haven't got time now, but there's weird and wonderful names of denominations. They get really creative. They have to. There's so many. Yeah. And I was the, the guy who had started this ministry, which now, by the way, is about 700 churches through five nations in, in East Africa, exploding, fantastic ministry. The guy who started this, he decided he was going to retire. But retiring, of course, meant he's still preaching every Sunday and he, everybody still sees him as the founder and the leader and the most, the most reverend person in the movement. But he set up the constitution of his organisation where the presiding bishop, is what he was called, could retire and join the apostolic council, he called it. So the retiring big man, and you have to understand that in, in many African cultures they're very hierarchical and someone gets to the top of the pile, often what happens is they stay there until they die in the chair and, and what happens is their underlings then fight amongst themselves to see who's going to be the next big guy to get into the chair. Okay? And I've seen ministries crumble to dust in, within weeks and months because of that. Terribly sad. And this guy creates this apostolic council, which is this honourable way for the big man to step aside and let someone else do the job better. I thought, oh, fantastic. This guy's been reading his Bible. This is awesome. Yeah. But you see, that's what Barnabas did here. Yeah. Paul's ready. He's the one now who can just take this further than I ever can. I can't get out of the guy's way. Yeah. Fantastic. Son of encouragement. Well, it goes on. Turn over another page and you find out there are thorns on roses. Paul and Barnabas have a humdinger of an argument. All over a guy by the name of John Mark who may or may not have been the author of the Gospel of Mark. We don't know. Okay? But what happened on their first missionary journey, um, Mark was with them and he split. You know, halfway through the journey, he quit. He He's gone. I'm sorry, fellas, I'm going home. Paul was pretty ticked off. And when it came to the next missionary journey, Paul is saying, this guy is not on my team. He is unreliable. I'm not having him. Sorry. The son of encouragement, on the other hand, said, cut him some slack, Paul. He's tripped over, mate, but he's got up again. I reckon he's good. Paul said, not a snowball's chance in hell, mate. I'm not having him. Don't want to be in the same room as the guy. So, Paul went this way, Barnabas went that way. Barnabas took Mark. <laughs> yeah. Paul found Timothy. Big split, you know, probably the first church split in history. Yeah, Been plenty since. But what I love about that is if you read Colossians chapter 4, verse 10, Paul is writing from prison much later in life and he says, oh no, actually is it, Colossians or, or to Timothy, anyway. I think it was Colossians. Um, <laughs> sorry about that. Um, where he says, please bring me John Mark. He is useful to me in ministry. And I read that verse and I think, wow, what happened in those 20 years? Something happened. We don't know. It's not in the Bible. But something happened. There came a point where Paul went, 
you know. Barnabas was right. The guy I did trip over, but he did get up and he's useful in ministry. I need him now. I need him. Bring him. I, I want him. From I'm not going to be in the same room as this guy to bring... I need, I need him. Bring him to me, please. I need him for something specific. He's, I've got a task for him. But see, again, what that says to me is the son of encouragement saw better than Paul in looking at Mark and said, this guy's got it. Don't, don't drop him on the ground now. Right now, what Mark needs is to be picked up, taken under someone's wing, and mentored and led and, and encouraged. And, and if he responds to that, he's going to be a great minister of the gospel. You've got, you can't just drop him, Paul. And the son of encouragement was right. He was right. And he was willing to go a separate way from Paul for the sake of Mark. That was his ministry. I put it to you. You know, one of the main authors of the New Testament in human terms was the Apostle Paul. We've got quite a few letters okay, of his, um, quite a list. And so much of our Christian theology and the way we run our churches comes from Paul's letters. Very, very important writings. But I put it to you that without Barnabas, we wouldn't have any letters of Paul. Paul would not have got where he got. Paul would not have had the ministry he had. He would not have written the letters that he wrote. The son of encouragement, whose name does not appear on the titles of any books here. 66 books in this Bible, none of them are called Barnabas. But he was just so important. Because he made, I mean, he, in human terms anyway, God, God made Paul, but you know, in human terms he was the one that made Paul. Yeah. He was Paul's mentor. He was Paul's leader at the right time. He was the son of encouragement who dragged Paul from being kicked out of the church because we don't trust this guy to being one of the, the greatest missionaries and theologians of, of the, the Christian era. Fantastic. All because of the son of encouragement. All because of Barnabas. Now, I've sort of gone down the, the road of a, you know, just having a look at Barnabas. I could, could have looked at a few other people. I, I could have done this way a, a bit differently. But have, you, have you, you figured out something about this body part that I'm talking about? And again, not the metaphor, not you know, finger, toe, whatever, but the kind of person that I'm talking about here. This particular role is something that's been you know, very, very important to me. And it's something that I have discovered over the years that, God's made me good at and and so I've been a I've been a teacher I've been a trainer I've been um I've I've led you know, in in Chad when I was, I was working with with SIL and doing bible translation my role was was training Chadian translators doing courses and and working with them in exegesis of of the of the the, the books that they were translating so that then they could do a good job with the translation in their mother tongue again it's this this training, training sort of mentoring kind of role, and and you know Kenya was was Bible colleges, and I've worked in in ministry training ever since. You know, it's it's part of who I am. And even one day, perhaps I'll not in any official role be doing that. Maybe I don't know. Maybe the day will come when I'm not official. Don't have a contract to do this or an employment to do that. It's, but it'll still be part of me. It'll still be what I do. And 
And it's not just in my professional life and my official titles and, and all that. It's, it's in the way I live too. I mean, just a, a silly little example. <clears throat> the other day I was... Um, uh, just lately I've done a few shifts as a, as a security, uh, security guard. I did that a few, few years ago in Melbourne. And uh, I thought, well, you know, I need to, need to pay some extra bills so I'll get re-licensed here in South Australia. And so I've done a few shifts as a security guard. And uh, just this week I was in the, uh, the West End Tavern in Hindley Street. And uh, most of the time it's a pretty quiet place. Um, Sunday night someone tried to kill me, but um, most of the time it's a, it's a quiet place. And uh, on Tuesday night, I was, I was there and um, the lady, the staff member there, she was working behind the bar and, and looking after the gaming room there. It was quiet at three o'clock. There weren't too many customers and the ones that were there were well behaved and minding their own business and required neither her attention nor mine. And so I was leaning on one side of the bar, she was leaning on the other side of the bar and we got talking. And uh, she's about 30-ish. And, uh, you know, she talked about a couple of disastrous relationships she'd had. And I don't know why she opened up so much. Perhaps that I'm old enough to be her father, perhaps. And, you know, that's, she felt a bit safer talking about such things with, um, with someone like me. I don't know. But anyway, she, she got onto the subject of kids, asked how many kids I had. She'd obviously, you know, she'd seen the, the, the ring there and whatever. And uh, how many kids you got? I said, well, actually, I've got five of mine. I, I married this lady who's got a few of hers, too. I didn't tell her how many. Um, but... Yeah, we've we got a pretty big family. Oh, yeah, actually, I was, I was the eldest of five. She said, you know, I'd love to have some kids one day. But, you know, I'm a bit, I'm, I'm aware, and she's wiser than most her age, um, but I'm, a really, I'm, a, I'm really aware of the responsibilities that that brings. You know, you, you, have, you have a child, and, you know, suddenly it's not about you, it's about us, and you have another one, it's about a bigger us, and I'm thinking, okay, this girl's getting somewhere. She's, she's, a, wise, she's a wise woman already, you know? And, uh, <clears throat> but I was able, from just from where I'd been, from my experience, and the fact that I've been the father of a fairly sizable family for a while, and I've, I've reflected on that, and I've learned some things, and I've been able to encourage her um, about that role. And there are some, yeah, the, you're right about the responsibilities, and, you know, you can't just be thinking about yourself all the time, but... And, and I began to talk to her about being a parent, Three o'clock in the morning and tavern in Hindley Street. You just don't know where you can be you, yeah, and where you can be your body part. You can you can be part of this group, yeah, and you and you can contribute something here, and you can do this, or you can be you can be part of the front line team, or you can cook chips in the kitchen, or you can get up on the stage, you can do all those things, or you can do none of those things, and you can still be your body part every day of the week. And you can do what God has made you good at doing. You know, for all that I have not felt the slightest flutter of nerves of standing up on this stage, I'm so used to, to public speaking, it doesn't bother me. I've still never been the person that, that kind of person that could get up on a soapbox on a street corner. The, the idea of that still... I just find some other way to do it, really. I just, that's, not, that's not me. I don't... No, I don't, I, don't, I don't go there. And Some people will. Well, I won't. It's not me. But I've learned what God has made me good at and I do it for the glory of God. Sometimes there are some gaps between those events where I do it for the glory of God and there's some events sometimes when I go, no, I'm not just being so Christian today. 
But God, God has made us all good at something. He's, uh, he's given us all gifts. He's given us a role. He's given us a part. We're, <clears throat> we're part of a, a, a body of Christ that is placed here in this world to make it a better place. It's a pretty ugly place out there. I know. I've worked on Hindley Street at 3 o'clock in the morning. I know it's an ugly place out there. The guy who tried to kill me on Sunday night was high on ice. That was why. Terrible stuff, ice. Shocking stuff. Anyway, it's a bad place out there. But we're here to make it better. We're here to have an effect on others, other believers here in this church as we interact with each other and encourage each other on and push each other into, you know, I, I might be able to see in you something that I can see God's, God's pushing you that way, so I'm going to encourage you. Maybe you haven't seen it yet, but he's, he's shown me. I'm, I'm going to push you there. And we can also do it in all sorts of other places we go. And God gives us a little push, a little touch, and says, speak to this person. Or, as the case was on Tuesday night, it wasn't a push, go and talk to this girl. It was like, this girl was talking to me. Okay, that's, that's all right, I'll... I'm in this conversation. wasn't my idea, but I was there. God put me there. So I talked for the glory of God. And that's what we're here for. You know, if, it, if that wasn't what we were here for, then we'd just be, we'd be zapped out of here or something when we became believers. We're not. We're here for more than that. And God has made us good at something. I want to encourage you this morning to go and do what God has made you good at. If you don't know what God has made you good at yet, talk to somebody about it. You know, you might be sitting next to a Barnabas who knows what you're good at, and they'll push you in the right direction.